Over a breakfast on the 39th floor of a very impressive building in Canary Wharf, which is really the fintech and commercial hub of London in so many ways, it's taken over from the city, we got to spend a bit of time with a man called Ben Braben. Now, Ben launched his first digital business in 2001. It was the world's first crowdfunding business. BMY Charity combined payments, social networking, and data analytics and enabled 800,000 donors to deliver more than 50 million pounds to UK charities. The business was sold to Help for Heroes, the leading charity for British servicemen and women. Level 39, where Ben now heads operations, is the world's most connected tech community. They support fast-growth businesses in three clear ways, giving access to world-class customers, talent, and infrastructure. What was so interesting is that we went into this shared workspace where everybody's kind of milling around and there are open tables and benches and meeting areas where people could sit and discuss ideas. People could sit and do think tank operations. They could sit and improve each other's businesses, network, share ideas, all that kind of thing in a very dynamic and interesting part of London. Ben himself is a tall, straight-laced ex-military type who has a face that gives you the impression that he has the courage of his convictions. And certainly in conversation, he gave that impression at every step. So I'll just I'll start off um, because I, I, I read some very interesting things about you. Ben, you, you began this business not so long ago, but you've been involved in so many other things. And I was quite curious to read about your time in the armed forces. Right. Which is, which is interesting because the, the way the English do that is it's, it's a much more holistic way of, of getting involved in the world, uh, whether it's in active service or not, um, than, than many of the armed forces around the world. And I think you learn a lot of social skills and, and quite complex things in the armed forces here that perhaps people wouldn't imagine in places like South Africa. They'd think, well... You get taught how to do what the armed services are meant to do. Um, but I think that that was probably quite an interesting and, and quite constructive, useful time for you. Well, I certainly enjoyed it. I was a Royal Marine for five years. And uh, yes, sometimes people afterwards ask me, what are your, you know, what do you learn from that that's transferable? And it's much easier to answer what's not transferable. There's actually a tiny amount of your time spent doing things in the military, which doesn't bring value to other parts of your life. So yes, you learn about how to structure and solve complex problems. Um, but you also learn about how to deal with people, of course, and sometimes to deal with people under considerable stress, which makes, you know, working with teams, leading teams, a great deal, um, uh, you have a great deal to bring to it. Um, and I guess um, it, it also gives you an opportunity to, um, to meet people from many different cultures too. And I, I'm sure in business you occasionally um, draw on that, that stuff, even if it's in a more subtle and less direct way. Well, I guess. I mean, I think um, very often people expect military leaders to be very directive and very occasionally, of course, there's a need for that. But quite often, there's also a need for building of consensus, mm. a lot of listening. And I was listening to General Stan McChrystal speaking recently, and I was struck by how little actual speaking he did, but how very high quality his questions were. He always asked people really good questions. I think that's a feature of leadership, which I've seen both in the military and more and more outside it too. So we're, we're sitting on the, on the, what floor is this? This is the 39th floor. So that's why it's level 39. Um, and we've got this incredible view over London. And the, the, the kinds of businesses that you've been involved in, the kinds of businesses that you are interested in, are businesses that are disrupting and causing, um, 
I suppose, massive change in, in all sorts of industries, and most of them obviously have to do with technology. Um, but what is it in particular that you think distinguishes those businesses from the more old school trading and um, service businesses? Well, this is a, we're careful about the use of the word disruption here because uh -huh. the companies that come here are coming to within five minutes' walk of 30% of the world's financial services IT budget holders. So companies come here, yes, because they want to drive change, but typically because they want to do it in collaboration with the incumbents. And what that means, this is a very business-to-business -business environment, although we do have some business-to-consumer stars like Revolut, who recently achieved a unicorn valuation of 1.7 billion. I saw the card uh, Eleanor showed me this morning. Fantastic. Well, there are... There are yeah. Some companies that are doing great things to bring change, but disruption is a word which some choose not to use so much as collaboration. Um, and, um, and to your point about the, the, the change of type of business from more traditional trading businesses, yes, people come here really because they have two things in common. The first of those is ambition, uh, and the second of those is typically an insight into the way in which the world of financial services in particular can work better, can become more productive or more secure. Uh, and in many cases also fairer. There are a number of companies here that are really extending financial inclusion and improving the way in which financial services are able to engage with the unbanked and the underbanked. Well, there's also this, this element of, of younger people wanting to work for businesses that do good rather than, and you mentioned fairer, which obviously plays into that too, but not just to do things for profit's sake. And I'm, I'm sure you've seen some interesting case studies and you've, and you've met some interesting people in that sort of sphere as well. Absolutely. There are companies here who are relentlessly bringing down the cost of participating in financial services that most people in the developed world take for granted. So whether that's making sure that you can uh, get information about the market that you might be taking food to sell, um, or a little higher up the, the hierarchy, perhaps making sure that you have access to financial services, which previously would be provided only expensively through advisors, but which are now available through more automated services. And indeed, more out of sight, but equally important organizations that are improving where its risk is, is priced in financial markets so that people are pairing fair, paying fair prices for what they buy. So the, the overlap between financial and, and technological is obviously an area of, of growth. Um, but there are also, I suppose, those areas which our friends in Silicon Valley are always talking about that might be of interest to you, whether it's um, AI or, or virtual reality or robotics or um, you know, agri-tech, med-tech, all of these things. Are there any of those in particular that you're interested in, in, in exploiting more voraciously? Is there any of that that really excites you more than anything else? Well, there are a huge diversity of people here, people from more than 48 different countries, but with many different backgrounds as well and many different academic uh, capabilities. So um, we're not seeking to pick sectors so much as to create opportunity and then ensure that anyone who's addressing those opportunities has got the best possible chance of success. So most of our work is about reducing and removing friction on the one hand and increasing awareness and engagement on the other. And that means that we are here, home to the largest cluster of fintech companies in Europe and also the largest cluster of cybersecurity companies in London. But that's because that's what the market demands. That's what the buyers are looking for, the customers are looking for. This, after all, is about product market fit. And so, uh, of course, artificial intelligence in particular has a huge part to play in the changes going on in financial services. And indeed, cybersecurity has a huge part to play, not just in financial services, but many other industries. So we are less here concerned with addressing specific 
verticals, as some people call them, mm. but more creating environments in which the best capability can find the best opportunity. When you when you look at the the big picture of all of this, and, and you must have a very interesting and unique perspective on it because you have dealings with all of these these sometimes smaller, sometimes very middle-sized, and sometimes enormous companies. Um, do you get the feeling that? that the idea of money is actually changing? Or do you think that that's still, you know, what it's always been? <laughs> and I think you know where I'm going with this. Because there are a lot of systems being broken down. And there are lots of old ways that are now being reevaluated. And before that wasn't possible. And people are deciding what they really don't need anymore and quite quickly ridding themselves of it. And then, of course, there's the, the issue on, on, on online security. We can get into cyber. Uh, security in a second because that's also an area of concern for people because if we do go the way that I'm hinting at and that I'm sure you have some comments on what does that mean for people who aren't well enough protected or cavalier when they go online with credit card details or with you know uh, wallets or whatever it might be that they're that they're putting their their currency into well I think that's a really great question and, and I guess you could sort of you could characterize our society our societies now by saying that, that, that there's never been a better time for people who want to invent, create, and to challenge paradigms. You question the future of money. Uh, and of course, there are people doing very exciting things at the moment with cryptocurrencies and exploring the relationship between the individual, <coughs> the state, and finance. Do we yeah. need central banks in the future is a good question, for example. Um, and for those who really want to push ahead, then it's a very exciting time. For those who are perhaps in danger of being left behind, who don't have access to the technology, who perhaps don't want to change experiences which they've become very comfortable over, over their lives, um, it's important that we continue to support and engage them as well. Otherwise, society tends to pull itself apart. Um, and one of the things that we have to do here is support and cherish the ambition of a community like Level 39, while also making the case that it's a public good, that it brings real benefits, that it makes our society fairer and more inclusive, and that the wealth generated created by brilliant people here is properly distributed, and indeed the benefits of their skills are properly distributed as well. Is the end game... I, I, I am biased in this respect because it's something that I'd like to I have a personal ambition to be involved in. It is the end game to ultimately disintermediate government itself. <laughs> I think that's a fantastically exciting question, but I'm not the person to ask it because I think to say, is there an end game, suggests that there is a single player. Yeah, perhaps. And, right. and if there is, well, it's certainly not me. Mm. Uh, our role and my role here is to create the conditions in which uh, disagreements can be productive. So we are not seeking to invite people to con converge on one single endgame. Instead, we're seeking es essentially to create conditions in which over 200 concurrent experiments can happen at the same time. 200 companies are based here, each pushing at some feature of innovation, overlapping sometimes, competing other times, collaborating a great deal. Uh, I don't think I can therefore say that there's an endgame. This game goes on and on. Well, we've, we've spoken about disruption and you mentioned why you don't like the word and you're careful about where you use it. And I understand that. But ultimately, various sectors have been, in their turn, disrupted. And maybe music was the first one to have that happen to it. Um, perhaps since then, there have been other kinds of media. And, and I think it's moved into, into financial services in a very big way. What's going to happen, do you think, after that? Which 
because construction, for example, is the least tech savvy of all of the all of the different sectors in the world, and and there is so much room there for efficiency to be created, for people to have a lot more technology and perhaps artificial intelligence do some of the the guesswork and the elimination of problems before you start digging holes or putting up buildings or any of that stuff. And it seems like construction will be one of the last ones to turn. Um, are there any that will be, in your opinion, free? I mean, this is philosophical, so I don't expect you to say, oh, absolutely, and I, I won't hold you to this and come back in 10 years' time and say you were wrong or you were right. But are there any that you think immediately are um, at the back of the queue? Well, another that's a big question. In fact, it seems to be a, a Sorry, several questions you, altogether. Am I texting yeah. you for 8.30 in the morning? Well, let, me, let me offer you a, a thought, which is this, that the most important thing in all of this is the person. Personness is not something which yields to technology. There is something in our intrinsic to us, our humanity, which uh, is not under threat, I think, from any technology, including artificial intelligence. Agreed. We have to protect ourselves against some of the consequences of that technology, or that family of technologies, because it's, uh, many things come under the umbrella of artificial intelligence. But we should not be afraid. And it has often in the past been the case that technologies divide people into the haves and the have-nots. And I don't imagine that will change. But we should continue to assert the importance, the centrality of our humanity. That's, the, that's human tech. Um, every industry, of course, has the opportunity to use technology to improve itself. And at Level 39, we're actually a subsidiary of Canary Wharf Group, which is a right. construction and real estate company. Right. So the big buildings you can see being built behind me, uh, 5 million square feet of world-class infrastructure being constructed right now. So our doors are wide open. We're looking to suck the most talented firms in the world here into London to use this as a, a global base. Uh, and we're very fortunate that many major financial institutions have chosen to do so. And we're opening the doors to smaller and earlier stage and scale-up companies now. That's what Level 39 is really for. And we have to use technology to do that, to support a large number of high-growth companies. A real estate has to be really agile, really adaptable. It needs not only the technology to support uh, a variety of different types of tenant growing at different rates, but it needs to be culturally agile too. It needs to create conditions in which people want to work, in which organizations which are themselves going through cultural change are able to do that, collaborating where appropriate. And in financial services, that often means with regulators as well as with each other. Um, and also not collaborating where it's appropriate. So they need to be able to get the strike the right balance between collaboration and competition. Um, and so as a real estate business, which hosts financial services and technology, yeah, we're acutely conscious of the fact that all three of these industries are going through change. Some of it driven by technology, but quite a lot of it driven by other things as well. So uh, the expectations of people coming to the workforce now are very different from those of their parents' generation. And a great deal of that is separate from technologies to do with personal values and priorities, for example. I think even, even for people who are at the, the less resource-full uh, um, part of, the, of, of the, the, the story, the people who really are at the bottom of the pyramid, and I don't even like the term pyramid, but uh, for those people, it's still better now than it's ever been even for them. And obviously for people at, at the opposite end, it's much, much better than it's ever been. I mean, there isn't an ancestor of ours, yours, mine, see as anybody else's, that we would want to swap with, even if they were grand, because they didn't have running water and electricity. And 
the idea now that you can turn an idea into a business, and because of the internet you can network with anyone in the world at any time, um, is, is extraordinary. And I think that that's probably something that's going to keep on creating exponential opportunities for people. Is there anything that we ought to be concerned about when it comes to capacity, do you think? I mean, especially here in London, I, I, you're building all of this office space and you're talking about how much development there is, and there really is, and it is an attractive magnet for financial services and for many other kinds of business. Um, but is there a, a, a concern around something almost like bacteria in the Petri dish, where it gets too big and we end up creating our own problems as a result of taking up too much space? I love your questions. They're, they're fantastic. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> no, it's brilliant. It's brilliant. Uh, the Petri dish. These are the things I, talk, I think about all the time. <laughs> so I, I think you, 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 you touch on something which is so seductive, this idea that in this you know, technology-enabled world, we're all connected, that we're all only one leap away from the person we want to talk to to create some brilliant business or great new product or even piece of art or whatever it might be. Sure. The practical challenges, though, are all about attention because although we are, it's easy to connect, it's hard to make the case for doing so. Capacity is the greatest limitation. So here in Level 39, our aim is to, is to be the world's most <coughs> connected community. That doesn't mean that all roads lead to us, but it means we want to connect with the people who are themselves the best connectors. So a huge proportion of my attention is directed towards forming the kind of relationships which are multipliers. On the one hand, for example, working with organizations like the Department for International Trade, which is the right. UK's government uh, export and uh, investment agency, um, but also working with, and, and indeed working with many of their peers in other parts of the world too, uh, to make it easy to make it low friction for organizations that want to establish in the UK to do so here in Level 39, but also to go the other way, to help build bridges into other markets. So we seek constantly to find and develop relationships which have that multiplier effect, but not just multiplying by volume, not just saying we know lots of people, but multiplying by relevance and quality too. So we're always trying to make sure that the companies that are here are at the front of every queue they want to be in, whether that's for customers or investors or access to regulators or policymakers or international partners, which means we have to help make the case for why they matter, for relevance, why it is that in the many things that someone has to do any given day, they should choose to engage with one of the companies that's here. That, for me, is the most important question. How do we deserve people's attention? Well, that's so interesting because it means that you have to be, at the same time, hyper-specialized and also quite generalist in terms of how you help these companies because you, 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 you're, you're dealing with very practical, pragmatic, real, everyday solutions to quite simple problems on one hand in terms of you know, space. And then you're dealing with these complicated issues that you just brought up now, connecting to customers, the attention economy and all of that kind of thing, um, it means that it could be quite a taxing job, I, I expect, to, to try and straddle both of those worlds simultaneously and deliver on both fronts. Well, it, it's certainly uh, it's a fun and a fascinating job. Um, I hope it's quite taxing. I wouldn't want a job that wasn't, I guess. No. Um, but I think uh, you, make a, you make a very good observation that actually trying to keep up with the brilliant innovation of 200 companies, each of which is led by people who are experts in their field, and each of whom is seeking to engage with experts in other fields, would be not only a Herculean task, it would be, it would be kind of crazy ambition to believe it was possible for one person, or even one organization, fully to represent all of that. 
the result is we don't try to be the go-between. We don't try to be an intermediary between one of the companies here and its prospective customers because we know that no one makes the case for what they do so well as the person doing it. And that's actually true within our own team as much as it's true among our community of member companies. We're trying to create conditions where people can deal direct. This is a peer-to-peer environment rather than an uh, intermediated hierarchical we're, we're in a country and in a, on a continent where um, there's tremendous need, not so much want. It's a developing economy. We have um, high levels of unemployment. Um, there are a lot of people who are really just in survival mode. And that often can be the most innovative environment of them all because it's a question of need. So people aren't creating ideas and coming up with solutions to, to complex problems because they want to or because they're trying to make money or because they're trying to prove to their friends that they're clever. They're doing it because it's life or death. And I think that that's possibly an advantage. And in South Africa, we have the, this gateway status to the rest of the continent in terms of our ability to provide access to the developed world to a market of the largest, youngest market of unsaturated consumers on earth. So that's a massive opportunity and a, and, a, and a tremendous challenge and it's quite exciting. But there are lots of things that get in the way there. Are, are you interested also in companies that are able to tap into those markets directly, get involved in finding ways around those problems very often? because people on the other end could do with an improvement to their daily lives when it comes to mobile technology, being able to bank more easily, being able to send each other money more easily, being able to participate in the formal economy where before they would have had to rely on cash that was stored under a mattress, unbanked. We certainly are. We're very interested in, in finding and working with people who can and organizations who can help reduce the friction, bring access to markets, identify problems which you know, unless you know a particular market well, you wouldn't even be aware of, you wouldn't imagine. Uh, we depend upon partnership here. So with 48 different nationalities, there are a few corners of the world where we don't already have access to local friends. Um, but that's just the beginning, of course. It's, uh, it's one thing to establish the first few connections. It's quite another to deploy at scale. And that requires the support, as I said, of, of both UK government agencies on, on the one hand and host nation government agencies on the other and often civil society organizations and the media so we engage closely here in the UK with organizations who have all of those characteristics but we try to support people at, at a distance of course when they're doing that themselves in other parts of the world and to your point about the opportunities of course in Africa there are several companies here already active in Africa um, personally and ideologically we're very keen to support that we also have to recognize our limitations and and it's far smarter, I think, to work with people who know the market mm. than it is to just turn up with your assumptions. And to your very first point about innovation through need and direct experience, uh, it's very clear that some of the most impressive uh, innovators and entrepreneurs, of course, have gone through really tough experiences and they solve problems that they've experienced firsthand. Um, and uh, there's plenty of academic research showing that the connection between migration and entrepreneurship, that migrants are much more likely to be entrepreneurial than those 
who haven't necessarily migrated. Um, and uh, we're very keen to make sure that we create conditions in which wherever in the world you come from, you have the best chance of success. So I'm not going to infer then that you think Brexit is a terrible idea because that there are possibly lots of things that Brexit could mean that could be very positive. Um, but it, it, it does represent a, a bit of a, an obstacle at the moment for some and for others. It's the green fields on the other side of that obstacle they're excited about. Do you have a position on this? Is it a complex issue? Am I trying to water it down and make it too simple? Or are we going to expect Theresa May at Checkers today to pull a rabbit out of the, uh, out, out of the proverbial hat and, and, and save the country from having to go to a general election immediately after Brexit? <laughs> I think uh, you, the word I'm going to pick out of the options you've offered me is complex. Right. It's a very complicated and complex question. That's, of course, the only right answer at this stage. <laughs> well, Otherwise, it would have been solved, right? Indeed, it would, yes. And I think uh, I was in Paris yesterday, um, and, uh, and it was fascinating, of course, hearing a French perspective on this. And I think, uh, you know, whether you're a French government or a French entrepreneur... Um, uh, it, it's, 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 it's nice a, it's to know the French care, first of all. Normally, they pretend not to. I, well, it was a pleasure to be there. <laughs> <laughs> okay, good. Um, and I think, you know, it, it commands such a powerful set of emotions from so many people. Yeah. What I notice in this community here in Level 39 is um, uh, that people are pragmatists. Right. So whether people welcomed um, the decision to leave the European Union or not, and indeed whatever they think the outcome of the ongoing negotiations will be, this is a community of people who get on with the art of the possible get stuff done right. and engage with markets. Now, those markets may go through change, but that's not new. Mm. Markets are always changing. One of, the, one of the absolute requirements of entrepreneurship is, a, is agility, the ability to adapt. And, um, and that, in some respects, of course, confers a potential advantage to entrepreneurs as we go through Brexit because several industries will have to adapt and it will, in some cases, be entrepreneurs who help them to do so. Um, having said that, I think um, that, uh, that perhaps the, the, the piece of data that I watch most closely is what do people actually do rather than what they say. And since the referendum um, in 2016, our membership here in Level 39 has increased by over 60%. Oh, that's interesting. So people are clearly voting with their feet and they're voting to get on with it. And right. I think uh, in this very pragmatic environment, Terrific. that's good news. Yeah. And well, you brought this question upon yourself by referring to migrants because obviously that's the trigger word. <laughs> when it comes to Brexit. Um, I, w I want to pick your brain quickly about what we're doing and, and have, have perhaps just a, a minute of your thoughts on where, where that might be going. So we're a, we're a four-year-old media and distribution company on the one part and then content creation business on the other. So it's a sort of new media world. And you mentioned the attention economy earlier. And really, to get people's attention these days, well, that always used to be media's job. More people watching a television show or listening to a radio program or buying a newspaper, the more you could charge advertisers to be a part of that. And what we've discovered now is that advertising has been replaced by content on the one hand, and that everybody's fighting for a smaller and smaller slice of people's attention. Which means that, in my opinion anyway, and this is where I'd like you to say, no, you're wrong, or yes, you're right, in my opinion, the, the winning formula will be the one that goes for the niche markets rather than for the broad ones because if you try to please everybody you end up pleasing nobody but also because the people who come for a program on fly fishing as small as that audience may be there's no wastage um, it's a tremendously potent audience and the one thing you know about them isn't necessarily the demographics that you get from target marketing but that they've chosen you so that psychographically 
these are exactly the people that someone who sells fly fishing equipment would want to get to. Do you think that that's a good strategy or do you think I'm wasting my time? Should I come and rather work downstairs at the door? Well, look, I'm really flattered you should ask me. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm, I'm picking the brain of someone who's constantly hearing good and bad ideas. Well, I'm constantly yeah. trying to pick other people's brains, so, uh, so I'm, I'm, I'm a little troubled that you try and... Uh... No, no, go on. <laughs> well, here's a thought. I think this is a, uh, a, 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 a question of our time. And uh, the reason I say that is it, it does seem that, that this constant fragmentation of us as audiences is quite closely related to our political and social polarization mm -hmm. as well. If we define ourselves as fly fishers on the one hand, uh, uh, or indeed with a particular political bugbear on the other, then we, it becomes harder and harder perhaps to deal with people who, who have a different preference. And the anti-fly fishers. Exactly, yeah. the, uh, the, the opposite guys. Um, and I'm concerned, I guess, by your suggestion that it's harder and harder to please everybody. I don't suggest you can never please everybody, but you can at least seek to create an uh, environment in which you don't uh, set out to displease people, uh, to clarify your own constituency. Um, so I think inclusiveness is an important aspiration, even though I'm sure it's a hard thing to achieve as a communicator. But I think there are some glimmers of light and this is perhaps more of a political point than a commercial one. So mm -hmm. commercially, I guess, targeting fly fishers who have a very clear sort of mm. appetite for a certain type of equipment. Um, I see that makes sense. But I wonder if you can do so, and if this analogy is going to work, without alienating you know, coarse fishers and yeah. people who, uh, who like doing it other well, ways. You'll need to produce stuff for all of them. Exactly. You but can in, point in, out that they in share... places, they can choose it. Yeah. And you can perhaps share, point out that they share various interests. They might share a love of the outdoors or... A, enthusiasm for uh, solitariness or something like that um, you can highlight those while of course also identifying and celebrating their differences and if we can do that not just commercially but socially and politically that would be a good thing in this environment i guess what that means is celebrating the ambition of the companies that are here right supporting them in the access they need to the resources the customers the investment the talent making the case relentlessly and where necessary very clearly to the people who can help them and the people who are hindering them. But at the same time, we have to understand and be really good at communicating the fact that that is for the population as a whole. Indeed, not just the UK domestic population, but what happens here is good for the world. Yep. It's in all of our interests that we have highly productive e industries, that they're secure from cyber threat and that they're fair. And companies here are achieving that, even though they do so in ways which are sometimes really complex and hard to understand. And part of our job is to help make that complexity simple and, if at all possible, worthy of attention. Well, don't worry, there's no fly fishing show yet. <laughs> but uh, I, I, if we ever do start to, to go down that line, I will remember your words. You're absolutely right, of course, because we, there's more that, that throws us together as humans than we know that in South Africa, having gone through the history that we have almost better than anyone, I would say. Um, are there lessons from that experience, yeah. you think, now that the rest of the world should be paying more attention to? Well, that's interesting. This year is the Mandela centenary. He would have been 100 on July the 18th. And I think his, there are a number of messages that you know, came through loud and clear during his life and things that he wanted people to know he believed in, but also the changes, that the very real changes that he wrought, that he brought about by being someone who wasn't looking inward but looking outward. Um, and I think there are. There are, there are things that, that I think we've made a few um, missteps and miscalculations 
in the immediate years after some of the big positive developments occurred. And they have to do with very base human behavior, which is expected, even from those who profess to be doing things on behalf of others, politicians and so on. Um, but I think that the, the central lesson of, of humanity and, and the need to be accepting of, of other people, and, and what I see here in London a lot is, it's a very open-minded, very broad-thinking city um, with people who, whose eye is on the greater you know, population of the world, not just on insular, local, um, parochial view of how, how things work. And I, I think that maybe South Africa could do with more of that. But the lessons that we could teach everyone else, um, perhaps we could teach other people to suspend their disbelief in how similar they actually are. And, and perhaps find more ways to collaborate, more ways to do things together and, and, and put away problems and forgive each other for an ugly past because the whole world is just really the story of predation from you know one person upon another and I think we can rewrite those stories now in terms of them having been a necessary route to follow to get to where we are ugly as they were and to try and do it better from here. Having picked Ben's brain about the armed forces and how businesses deal with change and disruption he also got to talking a lot about the trends that he sees coming on, and you would have got an idea of those from the conversation. Like so many of the business leaders that we met in London, there is an overarching concern around how technology can be used for good and for bad, and how we should direct that to bring people into technology first and foremost. Ben seems to be one of the people who's got his eye on that ball.